This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 16. It can be found on page 822 of the pew, uh, the Bible in the pew in front of you. It's Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see Jesus. God, would you send the Spirit to move among us? Would you awaken us? Would you stir our affections? Would you let us see Jesus more clearly? God, I ask you that you would give us, like you gave in this reading that we heard to Simon, God, would you give us a spirit of revelation from the very hand of the Father in heaven that we would see Jesus rightly? God, I ask that you would cause our affections to be stirred, our hearts to be inflamed with zeal, for the glory of Jesus Christ. God, would you shake us awake from our stupor, from our apathy, God, from the places where we have been clouded in our eyes by the things of this world and the love of other things. God, would you cause the glory of Jesus Christ the light of God that shines in his face, would you let it shine down upon us? Let our hearts be awakened 
by the true light of Christ, the image of the invisible God, the brightness of the countenance of the uncreated God. Let us see him this morning. Let us love him this morning. Let us orient our lives and our affections and our desires to him and to him alone. We ask for his glory and in his name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to begin a new sermon series outlining uh, the person of Jesus, looking at the person of Jesus. Uh, For the next 11 weeks, we're going to be drilling into what does the scripture say related to the person of Jesus Christ, right? At the heart of everything we believe as Christians is a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And we want to take some time uh, over the next season to look at what the scripture would invite us to see about who he is, uh, what he is like, what his nature is, what his character is, in order that we would see him more and love him more and orient our obedience and our affections toward him in more uh, potent ways. So uh, today's sermon, in a lot of ways, is going to be an introduction to the whole 11 weeks. I, I thought about trying to come up with a succinct introduction for this morning, but it turned into an entire sermon. So uh, here we go. This is, this is the why we're preaching this series and why we are going to uh, take some time to really focus in on who Jesus is. And so we have that kind of... Um, Catchy. I don't know if it's going to work or not. You might look at it and think it's cheesy. I sort of think it's a little cheesy. But we named it Jesus Is, and each week we've got uh, something that fills in the blank. If you've got that card, you should have uh, received on your way in. And these are 11 realities about the man Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's like, that I hope uh, get into our minds and our hearts and our affections and begin to change and shape how we see him and how we orient our lives around him. So let's just jump in this morning. Letter A. So the whole of scripture uh, tells one story. If you're not all that familiar with the Bible or you haven't given uh, a lot of study to it, there is one story in the entirety of the scripture. Here's, Here's the story in a sentence. The uncreated God created everything so that he could do two things. Number one, show himself to be infinitely and immensely glorious over all other things. He wanted to show how supremely majestic, beautiful, magnificent, and glorious he is. So he created everything that he might put on display how unbelievably magnificent he is. That's one reason. The second reason is he created everything so that he could prepare a people to dwell in him with relationship and he could share himself with. That is the heartbeat of the scripture. That's the one story that the scriptures tell. Now, there's a lot of ways that that story plays out. There's there's a fall, right? There's something that gets broken. There's chaos. There's redemption. There's all of these things 
baked into the story, but that is the story at its heart. And at the center of that story is one man. He's named Jesus of Nazareth, or we know him as Jesus Christ, right? This one man at the center of this story. Now, here's what's really fascinating. I don't know if you guys have ever done any time thinking on this. Not only is he at the center of the biblical story, in a lot of ways, you look at the last 2,000 years of human history, and he's at the center of history, right? How, have you ever thought about how this Jewish peasant from obscurity, who became like an itinerant preacher and a teacher, and by every earthly standard, his life ended in failure. How does he become the centerpiece of human history for thousands of years, right? He's not Alexander the Great, or he's not like this uh, massive military general or this uh, uh, ruler that took over half the known world, right? He's an obscure prophet. How does he become the most important figure in all of human history? Have you ever thought about that? So he's at the center of it all. So knowing and following Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. Because of this, it's essential for us to understand and know what the scripture reveals about him. So in this passage of Matthew, we, we are brought face to face with the centrality and the importance of answering the question, who is Jesus, right? This is for the reason for how we're framing the series. We need uh, to... Uh, we need not to just worship or uh, follow uh, a construct of our own imaginations, right? We have to worship and follow the man who has been revealed by God in accordance with how he has been revealed. So look at Roman numeral two. It's clear from a reading of Matthew's gospel that this scene in Matthew 16 forms a turning point in the life of Jesus's ministry, in, in how he's related to among his disciples. I want to just set the stage for it a little bit for you. So up to this point in his life, Jesus has been gathering people to himself, both in crowds and in disciples, right? He's ministering to the people. There's all these signs and wonders. He's feeding thousands of people. He's doing great works. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's operated with dynamic demonstrations of power. He's taught the crowds as one having authority. And he's called disciples to himself like a rabbi. He's given his disciples authority to go out and proclaim his message to the ends of the earth. And there's all sorts of fervor and expectation and buzz around him. So it's led to a lot of interpretations uh, in, in the, the day around him as to who is this guy and what is he about? Right? He shows up on the scene. He starts to proclaim that the kingdom of God is coming close. He starts to heal people, cast out demons. There's all this momentum and people are starting to ask the question, who is this guy? Who is he? What's his significance? What's his importance? The religious leaders of the day, the crowds, the Roman authorities, they all attempt to understand 
and situate the importance of Jesus in their own expectations, their own understandings, their own interpretations. So it's into this situation that Jesus, he removes himself from the multitudes of crowds. He takes his small band of disciples. They leave the region of Galilee and he has a little powwow with them. And he says, who do people say that I am? Right, like what's the word on the streets about me, about the son of man? What are people saying? What's all the buzz about? When you hear, when your ear is to the ground out there, who are people saying that I am? And I think this is important. I just want to note a couple things for you in this question. The first is, it's important that Jesus asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? He oftentimes identifies himself by this title, the Son of Man. He doesn't call himself the Christ. He doesn't call himself a lot of other titles. He uses this title more than any others because he wants to be able to fill in what he is about, not buy into all the expectations that everybody had. Okay, so Jesus says, who, does, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He wants to shape expectation and be able to fill that out for them. The answer that they give, letter F, is that Jesus is one of the prophets, so the answer that they give is that he, people believed he was one of the prophets. They describe him to be John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. It's fascinating. All these people are dead. But they believe that Jesus could be one of those guys or among one of the prophets. So this is evident that in Jesus's day, they believed he was in line with the Old Testament expression of the prophetic ministry. And in other words, the expectation of Jesus's importance was believed and understood even if the people didn't really know how to fully make sense of his ministry. So the importance of this section turns on the question that Jesus then poses in, in verse 15. So he goes, hey, who does everybody say that I am? Who, who, how, what are the crowds saying about me? What are the people saying about me? What are the religious leaders saying about me? And then he turns no longer concerned with what people believe about him, but he wants to personalize it and ask them. Our answer to the question, letter H, who do you say that I am, is the most important answer to the most important question that can be asked. So here's, here is the big takeaway that I want for us from this morning. How you answer this question if it was posed to you. If Jesus stood in front of you and said, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question has eternal implications for you. It is the only answer to the most important question that you can be asked. The answer to it upon your answer hinges so much. Who do you believe Jesus to be? at the front and center of everything about your life, this answer matters. It is remarkably important for you to know your answer here and it to be in line with what the scripture reveals. So one of the powerful realities of this passage 
It brings us to the nature of interpretation. It demonstrates that there will always be ways of understanding Jesus that seek to make sense of his life, his ministry, his claims, and his importance, but fall short of the reality of who he truly is. Look at the top of page two. So in our own day and age, there are a lot of answers to a question or to the question, who is Jesus, that are found on the lips of different people, different streams, different cultural concepts of him. I wanna just give a highlight a couple because if you believe these, I want to challenge you that the scripture reveals something different about who Jesus is. And it's really easy because he is so um, prolific. The idea of Jesus is prolific throughout culture that so many different interpretations of his importance are offered. And we need to receive by faith what God has revealed to be true about him. So here's, here's a couple. And now what's funny is each of these has like a smattering of truth to them, but they're not the whole truth. They're like a truth at the expense of a lot of others. So here's a couple that you might be familiar with. Number one, a lot of people will offer that Jesus is a moral teacher, right? There's so many who seek to understand Jesus's words as nothing more than a great teacher of morality and wisdom or virtue. These people state that Jesus has a lot to offer you to order your life according to things that are wise. He might invite you into a way of living as a better person in the world, a more moral person, a more upright person, but they don't teach that he's the savior of the world. They don't teach that he's a king that must be submitted to in every area of your life. They don't teach that he's the only exclusive way by which you can experience true and lasting life, right? So there's, there's a lot of talk in our world about Jesus as a moral teacher, right? I might take some of his teachings and try to live according to them because he helps me be a better person. Is that who people say that he is? Is that who you say he is? Right? The second would be Jesus is a revolutionary. And this is actually growing in its popularity in our present moment. Another claim might be that Jesus was a type of revolutionary giving a template or a blueprint for effective social change through a message of nonviolence. Right? That, that really hits well in our cultural moment. People like that about Jesus. Right? He, he was all about overthrowing whatever power base was at top and he did it through this like social upheaval, right? Like that sits really well in the cultural climate that we find ourselves in. But Jesus wasn't just a revolutionary. Jesus didn't just come to bring into upheaval power bases that were, at least not the power bases that we might perceive are. So is Jesus a revolutionary? Is Jesus just an example, right? That's a third one that we see a lot of. A popular sentiment in our time is that Jesus came to give us an example of what it looks like to walk with radical compassion, love, and forgiveness, right? Jesus was the ultimate, open, loving, forgiving, tolerant person. 
And if we could all be more like Jesus, our world would be so much of a better place, right? That's the message that is held in so many places. Ultimately, our answer to this question is one of eternal significance. I can't state it enough. Getting this right, quote unquote, matters for us eternally, both in this life and in the age to come. So what, what does Peter state here? I think Peter gives us beautiful, beautiful summation that's going to be like um, fields that we can uh, find ourselves in in the, in the coming weeks. Peter answers in this moment when, he, when Jesus turns and he says, who do you all say that I am? Who do you believe me to be? The first answer that Peter gives to Jesus' question is that he is the Christ, right? We see that in verse 16. Simon Peter replies, you're the Christ. So the word Christ is a Greek word that's just a translation of an old Hebrew word that meant anointed one, right? This idea of the Messiah, which might be, if you've been around the church, it's, it's one of those words that gets thrown around that people assume that you understand what it means, It's just the Hebrew form of the word that meant anointed. And what anointed meant was uh, that the Spirit of God empowered someone to perform uh, and accomplish a, a, a vocation or a task, right? So the Spirit empowered someone by coming upon them and anointing them to do something. So In the Old Testament, there was this concept that God would send an anointed one to bring salvation to his people. And in the New Testament, the word for that is Christ. So that's, that's what Peter is saying here. Letter B, over the period between the Testaments, so that's between the book of Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, the people of Israel never experienced freedom after returning from the Babylonian exile. So we've talked about that earlier in the year, if you were here, when we went through Haggai. In the Old Testament, there's this moment where the people of Israel were taken into exile. And then after a period of 70 years, they come, some of them come back to inhabit the land, but they're never free. They always have these overlords who rule over them and, and uh, govern over them. So they're never actually free. And during this time of about 400 years, there was all this excitement and all this expectation and hope that God would send someone to destroy the overlord and establish them in God's life once again, right? So this is in the water in the day that Jesus comes uh, into his ministry, Right? There's all this expectation that God is going to send someone to overthrow the Romans who happen to be the, um, the overlord du jour. He, he <laughs> somebody laughed after a minute. <laughs> uh, that he was going to send someone to overthrow them and reestablish the glory of Israel. Right? So Peter stands up and he goes, You're that guy. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one we're waiting for. So during this time, like I said here, there is a growing expectation that God promised to send an anointed deliverer from the line of David who would liberate them from their oppressors and reestablish the kingdom of Israel in glory. However, Jesus rarely used this term 
to identify himself. This is because his concept of how the Messiah would provide salvation was drastically different than the expectations of the people in his day. But I think it's really important for you to understand this. Jesus doesn't correct Peter. He doesn't tell him he's wrong. He just tells him, hey, don't let this out because everybody thinks that if you go around going, yeah, he's the Christ and he knows he's the Christ, that I'm going to take up arms against Rome. But what you don't understand is that salvation from God has to come in a different manner, meaning I have to give my life. And there's actually a different uh, problem that I have to deal with than the Romans. It's your sin. They didn't understand that. They didn't have a framework for that. And so Jesus doesn't correct Peter that he's the Christ. He just begins to reframe what that means. Look at letter F. I just wanna give this to you. I gave you tons of uh, scriptures here to go and explore on your own if, if that's interesting to you or if you wanna dig into what the scripture says here. But there are three portraits throughout the Old Testament that are woven together to become this idea of what the Messiah would be. The first portrait is that there was a promised a son from King David who would rule as the king over God's people. So we see this all throughout the scripture, all throughout the Old Testament. God promised that there would be someone from David's line who would sit on the throne over Israel and lead them. That's one picture that we see in the Old Testament. The second picture that we see is that there's this promise for an anointed deliverer who would bring restoration by bringing healing and, and uh, redemption to God's creation. Right? So we see this in the Old Testament, that there would be someone who would come and heal those that were sick and give sight to the blind and set free those who had been enslaved and in, cap in captivity. And Jesus comes and fulfills those things. But finally, we see that Jesus fulfills the portrait of what we see in the Old Testament you could call the suffering servant who would offer himself for the sins of his people. So Jesus brings these three realities together and Peter's profession, you are the Christ, actually encompasses these realities. Look at letter G, one specifically difficult element of understanding the nature of Jesus' messiahship among his disciples was the relationship between his necessary suffering and his identity as Messiah. And what you see, this is why in the passage, Peter goes from hero to the mouthpiece of Satan in like two seconds, right? Have you ever been uh, um, confronted with how quickly that happens? This is because Peter only had a fleshly understanding of God's deliverance. He did not have a heavenly perspective that God needed to deal with something more powerful than the Romans in delivering them, which is sin and death. Look at the top of page three. So Jesus doesn't separate these two realities, that the anointed deliverer would also be the one who came and died for the sins of his people. 
This is we see in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, be killed, and on the third day raised. Luke 24, this is after Jesus' resurrection, but uh, before they knew he was resurrected, Jesus shows himself to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things to enter into his glory? Speaking of his death. So look at letter I. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ highlights here the humanity of Jesus as a man. So Jesus is a man anointed by God, promised to send salvation and deliverance for his people. So to say that Jesus is the Christ is to believe that he is the only one who can bring salvation. He has come to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, to be raised again to glory, and to offer all who will believe on him by faith. He offers you forgiveness, eternal life, and access to God the Father. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one sent from God to bring deliverance, to bring salvation, to bring redemption. That's what we see in that first title. Look at Roman numeral four. The second answer that Peter gives, he goes on. He says, you're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah. But he says, you're the son of the living God. This is who you are. The title son of God throughout the New Testament becomes a remarkably important and profoundly rich title for Jesus because it helps give shape and definition to his relationship to God the Father. So to understand that Jesus is the son of God is more than just saying he has a special or unique place in God's purposes. Throughout scripture, it's understood that for Jesus to be the son of God demonstrates that he is both eternally God's son and that he is equal with God. Now we're gonna have a couple sermons solely on this. But when Jesus says that he is the son of God or when Peter declares you are the son of the living God, He's not just saying you have a special relationship to God. He's saying you are God. That's what he's saying. And I'll, I'll show you where we get that a couple places. Number one, Jesus is eternally God's son. So in the understanding of how the, the early church put together this title, they began to clearly see that for Jesus to be the son of God meant that he was the son of God from eternity past. Look at John chapter one. In the beginning was the word, which is Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So from eternity past, in the beginning, pre-existent. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is the son, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, I love this sentence in John chapter eight, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And they go, hey, you're not, you're not even like 45 years old. What are you talking about? Jesus says, Truly, before Abraham was, I am. Way before Abraham existed, I am. When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is his prayer in John 17. Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. Look at verse five. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus understood that he existed, his sonship existed in eternity with the Father. He had a glory before the world was created that he shared with God the Father as God the Son. And he has to be glorified with that. So number one, that did mean that Jesus is eternally God's son, but it also means that as the son, Jesus is equal with the father. Look at John five. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. Not because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his father and they understood what he meant. Did you ever see that? They didn't want to kill him just because he was breaking the Sabbath. He was going around saying, I only do what I see my father doing. And when I see my father doing that, when he's at work, I work. And they go, this guy's calling himself God. He's making himself equal with God. They understood what he was saying. John 10, I and the father are one. So Jesus' declaration that he is the son or Peter's declaration that he is the son of the living God carries within it this reality that Jesus is eternally God of God. He is divine. Look at page four. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God highlights the divinity of Jesus. He has existed eternally with God and is himself God. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is eternally the second person of the triune God. Now we're going to spend several weeks in this time laying out those realities. Because at the heart of what the Bible reveals to be true about Jesus is that he is God of God and he is fully man. And so when we look at him, we see the revelation of God and he walks as the anointed one of God to bring salvation. We'll walk into that a lot in the weeks to come. Let's look at this, the necessity of revelation. So Peter's declaration is one of the most succinct and powerful declarations of Jesus's true identity found in the scripture. Both of these phrases are full of meaning and both are necessary for a full portrait of the person of Christ. But on hearing Peter's profession of faith, Jesus pronounces that he is blessed, that there's a particular blessedness that comes upon him. This blessedness lies in the reality that this truth was not something that he had derived from his own intelligence, his own skill, his own wisdom but rather that God the Father had chosen to reveal this truth to him. In other words, Peter was blessed because God had given him eyes to see and know the true identity of Jesus. Look at Matthew 16 here again. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this demonstrates to us the reality that Jesus's identity cannot be understood apart from the truth of God's revelation to us. Now, because of this, there's a lot of implications here. 
We must submit ourselves to what he has revealed to be true about Jesus by faith. At times, there's going to be all sorts of paradoxes and difficulties that consist in the portrait of Christ that has been revealed through scripture. However, we must submit ourselves to humbly accepting the glorious mystery of Christ Jesus as God has revealed it. Now, I wanna invite you to something. Throughout most of history, the way that people have conceived of knowing things about God is that God reveals himself. We believe it, and then we grow in understanding. So there's a famous phrase throughout church history called faith seeks understanding, meaning I put my chips into what God says, whether I understand it or not. And as I put my chips into the lot of what God has revealed to be true, I believe it, I'll order myself around it, I believe that he will bring greater understanding. Here's why I wanna state this. You have been trained in a vastly different way of conceiving how truth works. From the time you were little, we have been trained to not believe that there is some truth out there that will make itself known to us whether we understand it or not, we're to believe in it and order ourselves around it and then we'll grow in understanding. You and I have been taught that unless we understand, we will not believe. If I can't put my brain around it, if I can't make sense of it, if I can't wrap my own understanding around it, I will not believe. I've gotta be convinced. And we kind of dig our heels in and cross our arms and wait. And I wanna say, if that is how we are disposed to relate to Jesus, we will be missing, I believe, the way that God has designed us to grow in actually understanding him. We gotta put our chips in. We gotta go, whatever you say is right. Whatever you say is true. So if you tell me you're fully God and fully man, I don't even care if I can't make sense of how that works. I'm gonna put all my life into it. If you say that you are the only way to find salvation, I'm gonna put all of my chips into that. Even if I have hangups on what does that mean, right? We gotta orient our lives around what he says, not around what we understand. So do we want to pursue faith, seeking understanding, or understand before I have to believe? Or you could maybe say it differently. We've been trained to believe in doubt, seeking understanding. Right? Because I don't have time to do that. Go to the next page. I'm going to close here. The church's foundation. So Jesus turns to Peter and then declares that he will build his church upon this rock. 
I'm not gonna give the different interpretations of that. I'll just give that for you, for your own sake. Beyond this, letter B, the foundation of the church or the rock of the church is Jesus. Both in reality, united to him by the spirit and in belief, meaning the rightly held doctrine of Christ. So there's two ways that Jesus is the foundation of the church, the rock of the church. One is in reality, meaning for all who call upon the name of Jesus, he takes us and unites us to himself in reality by the Holy Spirit. You are joined to him. You are one with him. You have been made part of his body, like a head and a body. We are joined to him mystically by the Holy Spirit right now in reality. That is one way that he is the foundation or the rock of the church. We will not be taken from him. And one of the ways that Jesus is the rock of the church is through rightly ordered belief in who he is. The rightly understood doctrine of Christ Jesus. This is the foundation that will not be shaken and will not ultimately be prevailed upon by the schemes of the devil. This is what Jesus states when he says, I tell you I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Jesus promises that there will be a sure and steady foundation for the church. It's clear from both this passage and throughout the New Testament that Satan seeks to separate the church from her one true foundation. Many have seen two common means that he uses to assail the people of God. Number one is persecution. I'm not going to drill into that because that's not really our mode at the, at the time being. But that it's physical opposition, rage, the rage of Satan against God's people. He will seek to separate them from their foundation by inciting fear in them that leads them to falling away. But the one that I believe that we have more of a reality in present tense with and why I think spending time outlining what is the pure and true doctrine of Christ is because Satan seeks to separate the church from her one foundation through deception. And I love... In, in John Owen's book on the glory of Christ, he says that the times when Satan uses persecution are when she has been shored up against deception. So do a little like syllogism for me. If we aren't experiencing the rage of Satan that way, what does that mean about us? It means that the battlefield on which we are seeking to remain joined to our rock and our foundation is in the realm of deception, not in the realm of persecution. And so we have to be shored up with what does the scripture say about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's like, about what he's done. And we have to line ourselves up individually as a church. We have to be in line with who he is. 
We cannot be tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine or uh, deceived to believe lofty arguments that get raised up against the knowledge of who he is. We have to shore ourselves up, gird ourselves up in our minds and ask the spirit to come and bring a greater uh, understanding of who Jesus is by revelation so that we would be shored up in who he is in, in line with the rock of Christ. Look at deception here. The other means that's commonly used is to bring deception to the church, specifically in relationship to the person of Christ. Toward this end, he utilizes false teachers who will seek to distort and pervert the pure doctrine of Christ in order to lead God's people astray. Look at Matthew 24. Jesus says in the the time between his comings, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Hey, that is, that is what's happening right now. Lawlessness is increasing. People love darkness more than they love the light. They love the ways of the flesh they love the ways of comfort. They love the ways of this world. And lawlessness is increasing. And what is happening is people's love is growing cold. Hey, deconstruction is love growing cold. Okay, the, the waters we're walking in where it is the commonplace for people who have walked with Jesus to begin to allow doubts and um, discouraging, darkened thoughts toward him to find their way in and begin to like worm their way around in their soul. Love growing cold. Jesus promised that that was going to happen. He promised that it was going to happen. So if anybody looks at you and says, hey, this is the Christ. And that's not just going, this guy is the Christ. It's going, this is what Jesus is like. Wouldn't Jesus want you to just take an example that he's a loving, like compassionate person or he's a revolutionary or whatever you want to put in there. That's what Jesus is like. Don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and even perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. Jesus says, this is going to get dark. This is going to get hard. Stay fast to the foundation that is Christ. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul experiences as he's talking to the Corinthian church. I am afraid that just like the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, again, False teachers don't show up with a big old placard that says, I'm a false teacher leading you astray. They show up with cunning. Hey, did God really say? Hey, do you think God would really want this for you? Did God really want you to put that thing aside? That's what it sounds like. Paul goes, I'm afraid that just like Eve was deceived by the serpent through cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For 
If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's indicting them and saying, shore up yourself. Shore up what you know to be true about Jesus. Where do we shore up what we know to be true about Jesus? He has told us who he is. He has shown us through the scriptures. He's revealed himself to us and he calls us to orient what we think about him in accordance with what he has revealed. Not to doubt, not to get into the the, um, ways of thinking about, did you really mean this? Did you really mean this? Did you really say this? Picking and choosing which ones we like. He has revealed himself and we are to come up under that. That's why we're gonna take so long looking at these because I think it really matters for us in our moment when lawlessness increases and love grows cold, if there are false teachers and prophets and uh, doctrines that come in and begin to assail the people of God, we come up under the head, Christ Jesus, by faith and we receive from him who he truly is. Amen. Would you stand? So we prepare to come to the table this morning. I just want to take a moment for us to respond to the Lord and just say, we're yours. We submit ourselves to you. We want, we want your truth. I was praying this morning um, in a really, really uh, beautiful way. I think the Lord's highlighting this. I was praying early this morning, uh, Ephesians chapter five, um, awake, awake, O sleeper. Rise up and Christ will shine his light upon you. So there's this odd relationship. A lot of times we think, uh, I won't reach until I have been convinced or I have been, uh, I feel something or I'm overwhelmed by something. The scripture invites us, respond to the truth of God because it's true and he will shine upon your heart. He will draw near to you. So we're just gonna respond and say, Lord, would you activate our faith in this room? God, would you shine the light of your face over us? Just where you are, just respond to the Lord. God, I wanna see you. I want to see you and know you more. God, would you open my eyes to see Jesus? God, would you make this spiritual family a body that is submitted to the head, Christ Jesus, in every place? 
God, would you open our eyes? Would you awaken our hearts? Would you shine the light of your countenance upon us? That we would see you, that we would love you, that we would glory in you, that we would delight in you. God, I ask that you would keep us, keep us from a spirit of deception. Would you keep us from the prevailing winds of doubt? God, would you show yourself just like you did to your disciples, just like you declared here, we can't, we can't even intellectualize our own way into believing this. We need the spirit of revelation. God, so would you send the spirit of revelation right now upon us? God, reveal Jesus in this place. Reveal Jesus in our hearts, our minds. God, would you let us see him? Let us delight in him. Let us rejoice in him. Let our hearts be like the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. When they remember and they look back and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? God, would you give us burning hearts for your son? God, we don't want to be those that are tossed around. We don't want to be those that are complacent or apathetic. God, we want to be alive. We want to be alive. So would you come and bring your life? Let us see Jesus more clearly. Let us love him with all of our hearts, souls, minds, strengths. God, would you order this family around your son? We're gonna respond this morning through song. We've got people that would love to pray with you and pray for you all throughout the sanctuary. If God's just like moving in your soul and you want to repent or ask for a greater spirit of revelation or just even take a step toward, I want to, I want to put my faith again in, in this man. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean for the first time. If it's for the first time, that's beautiful. But even, even as someone that's walked with Jesus. We, we have to realign our perspective and our uh, belief in who he says he is. And if you want someone to stand with you and pray with you, we'd love to do that. We'll respond this morning by coming to the table. Servers, you're welcome to come forward now. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. He took in his own body the stripes that we deserved so that through his chastening, we would have peace with God. Take and eat of his body this morning. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he gave thanks and he passed it to his disciples and he said, this is my blood shed for you. 
the blood of the new covenant, the blood that's required to offer remission and forgiveness of sin. Take and drink from this. We're going to come and do that. If you look to Jesus and look to him alone, I want to invite you to come and take communion with us. This meal is open for any and all who will call upon his name. So if that's you, come when you're ready. The way we take communion here is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware and juice in the glass. We'll have servers in the front, the middle, up in the balconies and a gluten-free station down here to my right. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take this meal. Don't feel pressure to come and perform. We want you to take Jesus. This meal points to the reality. This meal points, it's a signifier of our faith in Jesus. And so if you don't have faith in Christ, don't feel the pressure to come and receive of the sign. But for those of you who are coming, come when you're ready. We'll respond in song, through prayer, and at the table. Amen.